Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I'll start you off on this one with a little two-minute discussion question. Just turn to the person next to you on your table and tell them what you first think of when you hear the phrase, the presence of God. And then, have you had any experiences that you would say were an experience of God's presence? Turn and reflect. All right, what did people think the presence of God is? What comes to mind when you hear it? Let's feed in a bit. I think there, there was these wonderful times when, exactly with Saul, this amazing presence of God, when everyone just prophesied. Mm. It's like, what would that be like? Especially yeah. he had, he wanted to sort of lay into going, you know, bumping off David, and he prophesied. Yes. The God was so, yeah. so tangible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Were the people thinking similar? Thinking other things? He thought of like the literal presence of God. Mm-hmm. Wherever that actually means, that sort of, not necessarily God himself, but an aspect of God, which is also God himself. Yeah. Whether that's the Holy Spirit. Mm. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the presence of God is being with God where, where he is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Any. Any other things that please like? I'm just focusing more um, on the fact that when we, when we are with him, when he's present yeah. with us, that peace and that rest. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so the effect of God's presence can be peace or rest. Or, I mean, in some Bible stories, there's all sorts of effects of the presence of God. People sometimes fall on their face. People cry. I mean, we, we read the one where um, Uzziah touched the Ark of the Covenant and dropped dead. Um, You've got Isaiah, like, woe is me. There's so many different tangible responses. But the rest of the piece, particularly thinking, you know, New Testament believers forgiven in Christ, there really is a, a sense of that often. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, the Mount Sinai experience. Mm. You know, sort of the, the flashes of light. Yeah. The, the, the cloud and, yeah. and all of that. And the, yeah. And the... We've got to talk to you because we will die if we talk. Yeah. That that sort of sense. Of, Absolutely. Uh, of God's presence. Is yeah. Overwhelming. Yeah, definitely. My, my um, sorry, I've forgotten your name. Who <laughs> Sorry. Um, was talking about the, the Toronto blessing. Mm. Yeah. The time. Yeah. You know, yeah. The church has experienced that. Yeah. That real blessing yeah. Is that something you experience yourself? Yeah. Yeah, wow. Our old church had to get carpets down because everyone was on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Just crushed my yeah. yeah. It's even carpet burns. Some people that are younger might not have known you know, what it was. Yeah. Yeah, so the, do you want to give a brief overview of, of what we're talking about? That colours your understanding of what it means to be in the presence of God. You yeah. Sort of think anything that sort of harkens back to that experience yeah. is good. If, 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 if I'm in God's presence, I expect to feel 
some degree like that. Yes. Yeah. And I know there are other ways of feeling Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so, so we're talking about it was the 1990s. There was just a, an outpouring of the Spirit of God that a lot of people were really blessed by that experience. It, it started in Toronto. Started in Toronto. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's interesting that what most people reflected on instinctively when we talk about the presence of God is moments or experiences or a way of being that is different to the ordinary, different to how life is all the time. And I, I want to just rewind a little bit and, and just start by saying something that's obvious but needs saying, is God is always present, everywhere and at every time. We use the word omnipresent as part of what it means for God to be God. And so when we think about the presence of God, we want to be really careful that we don't then think the lack of presence of God as though somehow in one particular place God isn't there. That would be wholly incorrect to think about it that way. In fact, David in the Psalms says, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Or Jeremiah says, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? God is always present everywhere, all of the time. And so when we when we think about how we live, we live in the presence of God. Everything we do is in God's presence. Everything we say is in God's presence. And when we think about desiring the presence of God, that's a really important thing to remember, is whether we realise it or not, God is present. That's important. There are other ways, though, to think about the presence of God. And I think particularly when we're a Christian... I think then there's another way in which God is present with us all the time that goes beyond the fact that God is just everywhere all the time. So Jesus promised before he ascended to heaven, I will be with you always until the end of the age. He's promised to be with us in a way that's more close, more intimate, more, um, more whole, I guess, than just the sense of God as omnipresence. In fact, when... Um, Paul writes in Galatians, he says, it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. And he could see his whole life lived in the presence of Christ, Christ living through him. God dwells in our hearts as believers by the Holy Spirit. And it says in Romans that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So every Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, so God's presence in their hearts. Again, it's really important. And that makes a difference for the way we sing, the way we talk, the way we pray about the presence of God. Andrew Wilson, in a great blog post he wrote, pointed out sometimes people sing the song, Waiting Here For You, We're Desperate For Your Presence, without regard to the fact that the presence of God has already come to them in an irrevocable way, both individually and corporately. And Jesus has promised never to leave them nor forsake them. Now, I don't think it's wrong to sing a song with lyrics like that in it, as long as we know what we're singing and we, we have this sense of, yes, God is present with me, 
right, well, what I'm asking for then is, and we'll come on to that in a second. He says they talk about seeking the presence, and they quote Moses' famous prayer, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. Again, without reference to the vital points that even then God had already promised to go with Israel. And that since Pentecost, it's simply impossible for a church who believes and preaches the gospel to somehow lose the presence of God. And I think it's really dangerous if we don't have this sense that God's presence is always with us. Because I've been in times when I've been in a a gathered meeting and we're singing, we're worshipping, and I can look around and I see a person over here who's obviously having some kind of experience with God. Uh, And it might result in them uh, laughing, it might result in them kind of laying out on the floor. And you can tell God's meeting with this person right now. I'm like, oh, God's not meeting with me right now. It's like a, a tutu that you're in the presence of God. Why, why aren't I in the presence of God? Why isn't God with me in the same way God's with that person? Or it can cause us to be a bit dismissive the other way. So if we are having these moments, like, yes, I'm in God's presence. Oh, look at you. You're so, you're so stiff and formal. You need to experience God's presence. And we can quite quickly make a two-tier system. of The people in God's presence and the people who aren't really in God's presence And whichever side of that divide we think we're on, it can be a bit negative to think about it that way. There is another way we talk about God's presence, though. And I think having the framework of knowing God is always everywhere, and as believers, he's always present and indwelling us, we can talk about what we call the manifest presence of God. And when we talk about this, we're talking about particular experiences of God's presence that are meaningful, that they're biblical. And it's certain moments when, not that God wasn't present before, but where where we somehow become more aware of and appreciative of his presence that's always been with us. It's like our eyes are open and we're like, whoa, I can see the God who is present with me. And something in us starts to perceive God's presence with us. That's the manifestation of the presence of God. So A.W. Tozer says the presence and the manifestation of the presence are not the same. There can be one without the other. God is here when we are wholly unaware of it. He's manifest only when and as we are aware of his presence. So when I think about that worship time and my friend here is having that experience, it's not that God isn't present with me and God's present with them. It's just that they've somehow got this just awareness and appreciation in that moment of, wow, I can see something of God with me working in a particular way. And I can rejoice in that. I know God's with me as well, but I can rejoice that they're having this moment where where they're just expanding in their capacity to see it. John Piper says there is a sense in which God's presence is not with us always. For this reason, the Bible repeatedly calls us to seek the Lord, to seek his presence continually. God's manifest, trusted, conscious presence is not our constant experience. I think we'd all agree with that, wouldn't we? I I mean, it'd be great if it was our constant experience to be consciously in the manifest presence of God. That's, That's not how... 
it is. And so we should desire it and seek it. But what I want to do just in the time we've got is just maybe track a thread through the Bible. I think there's a, a great way of reading the Bible uh, is picking a theme and just seeing how it works from Genesis to Revelation. I think that will just help us a bit when it comes to understanding God's presence. So we're going to do that uh, just in this bit of time. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Don't worry, we're not going verse by verse through the whole thing. <laughs> but when God made the heavens, what do we mean by the heavens? Well, there are different senses of the word in the Hebrew. It could mean the sky, it could mean space, but usually it's used to mean the dwelling place of God and the earth, the dwelling place of man. And the dwelling place of God and the dwelling place of man in creation are together. They belong with one another. And we see this in the Garden of Eden, don't we, where God would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of day. There'd be no barrier between people experiencing the presence of God. G.K. Beale said the Garden of Eden was the first archetypal temple in which the first man worshipped. So they were there and they were able to experience God's presence continually. But when when they sinned, it put the barrier between humanity and God and not wanting to be in his presence. You know, God came into the garden to walk with them and they hid. They, they're like, no, 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 God, we don't want to be in your presence. We're carrying a shame. We're carrying a guilt. So we will remove ourselves from you. The flip side of it is then God also removed them from his presence. The access to the garden of Eden was barred as a consequence of their sin. In Genesis 3, 23, it says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You can't come into the presence anymore. You're outcast from the presence of God. You could say, in a sense, the whole story of the Bible, then, is the quest to see heaven and earth reunited, the dwelling place of God. Can God dwell with man anymore? Sinful man, who we've seen coming into the presence of God, is dangerous if you're bringing sin into God's presence. It leads to death. So can God dwell with man anymore? Through the Old Testament, we see God occasionally appearing to specific people particularly in Genesis you get these kind of appearances but they seem mediated through angels particularly the angel of the Lord would be the form that God would use to appear to people but Moses had a more intimate revelation of God than any who had gone before him in Genesis he saw God in the burning bush and God revealed to him his name which he hadn't revealed before and then if we jump on to chapter 33 of Exodus, Moses says to God, God, please show me your glory. He desires an experience of God. He's had the experience at the burning bush. He's had the experience on Sinai. But now he wants to see God even more intimately. He wants to see the glory of God revealed. And this is the, the response of the Lord. He said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me. And live. Now, just a little pause here. That word for face is the Hebrew word panem, which is also used to translate presence. So the face of God 
and the presence of God are referring to the same thing. So God's effectively saying to Moses, you cannot see my presence because if you see it, you'll die. But the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face, my presence shall not be seen. When you read something like that, what is your instinct? Do you instinctively think about this experience that Moses had with God and think, wow, I want that. I want to experience God like Moses experienced him. What? That's my first thought. It sounds good until I read the New Testament. Until I'm like, wow, wow, we've seen God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have the presence of God with us now. Moses would have longed to experience God in the way we experience God. We've got something unbelievable. And you read through the book of Exodus and we had a session on Exodus um, a few months ago uh, and it was striking to me as we read it how much of Exodus isn't the bit of the story that I think of as Exodus. You, you know, the first 15 chapters when they're in Egypt and uh, they're confronting Pharaoh, set my people free with the Passover, the Red Sea. That's what I think Exodus is. And that's less than half of the book. And then much of the rest of it is about the construction of the tabernacle in intricate detail. And it's interesting. Chapter 25. Speak to the people of Israel and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. The idea wasn't just we've got the people enslaved in Egypt, we want them to be free and then they can crack on. The idea is the people are enslaved in Egypt, I want to bring them to freedom so that I may dwell in their midst. And it's a people freed to experience and enjoy God's presence. As they went through the wilderness, God led them by his presence, fire at night, cloud in the day. And that presence descended upon the tabernacle. God's very presence, as the people set up camp around this tabernacle they'd constructed, God's very presence went and dwelt in it, the glory cloud. The end of Exodus says this, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The whole idea is that the people of God are the people in whom God's presence dwells. That's the privilege of being God's people. Now there are some problems here. The, the main one was it hadn't dealt with the sin. So yes, God's presence is there, but the trouble is if anyone goes too near it, they're still going to die. And so it was in a tent, and in this tent there were curtains separating off the holy bit and the most holy bit. And there were very strict rules. Who could go in at what point in time? And the actual place where the presence was, only the high priest could go in. 
could only do it once a year and he had to do it with all sorts of ceremonies and incense and looking down and having a rope tied around his leg in case he died and no one else wanted to go in to fetch him. He basically was trying to get it so he could get close to being in the presence without actually experiencing the presence. He couldn't look up, he couldn't appreciate and behold and bask in it. Well, we, we read about the temple when we were going through Kings. It was a good idea from David to have the temple. It was a great construction project from Solomon. But it had basically the same strengths and weaknesses that the tabernacle had. There were still the same limitations about it in terms of who could go in. But still the principle of having the presence of God dwell in the heart of the people was a good one. And so the temple became a focal point by which people thought of God's presence. Psalm 27, David prays, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David's desire wasn't, I want to be in the temple because it's a nice building and I appreciate the architecture. It was, I want to be in your presence, God, more than anything else. And so he spoke of that using temple language. And Jonah, uh, Jonah, when he was in the belly of the fish, prayed, I'm driven from your sight, yet I shall again look on your holy temple. His hope from the fish wasn't, maybe one day I'll get to do some sightseeing in Jerusalem. His hope was, God, I want to be back in your presence. That's what I long for now. I'm repenting, I'm turning around. I long for your presence. In fact, this very topic we're looking at, the presence of God, theologically, it's often referred to as temple theology and tracking the theme of the temple through the Bible. Well, we got to the end of Kings and the people were taken into exile. And that was heartbreaking for the nation on all sorts of levels. The personal loss, the loss to their property, the most devastating thing for the nation at that moment in time was that the temple had been destroyed. This place of God's presence was God. Where's God? Where can people meet with God now? Are we really still God's people if God himself isn't dwelling in our midst? If we're in this foreign land, how can we worship? How can we experience God from there? And so when they returned to the land, it's interesting that the first priority they had, and we read this in the book of Ezra, was to rebuild the temple, was to get the thing constructed again, was to dedicate it again. And what were they hoping would happen? The glory cloud of the Lord that descended on the tabernacle, that descended on the temple when Solomon first dedicated it. They were hoping that would happen again. But in Ezra 3, it says, All the people shouted with a great joy when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who'd seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. They wept, the old ones. The young ones were happy. Hey, we've got a temple. We're buzzing. We're back. And the old ones were like, guys, it's not the same. Something's wrong. This isn't how it was meant to be. The whole point of the temple was that God's presence dwelt in it. Sure, we've got a temple, but where's the presence? Where's the glory cloud? God's presence seems still departed from Israel, what can we do? And for the next few hundred years, it was a nation in grief and mourning 
because God's presence was gone. They were crying out. They were desperate for God's presence to return. That's why the Pharisees were like what they were, because they saw God's presence was missing, and they wanted God's presence back, and they said, look, in the first place, what led us into exile was we didn't keep the law. So let's keep the law. Let's make sure everybody keeps the law. Let's make sure nobody transgresses. Let's put barriers around it so we can't transgress the law. Why? Because maybe, just maybe, if we do that, God's presence will return. Now, the way they went about it was all wrong, but you can understand the heart behind it, can't you? You can understand what they wanted to see. Well, God's presence did return, but not in the way they thought. It wasn't the cloud descending on the temple. But in the introduction to John's gospel, John 1, verse 14, talk about Jesus. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God dwelling amongst people. And what's the word literally that's used, made his dwelling? He tabernacled among us. The place of the presence of God is no longer a building that you have to journey to it's a flesh and blood walking temple who went round the towns and villages of Israel. Jesus spoke of himself as a temple. If you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. He said he knew that in him was the meeting place between heaven and earth. In him was God's presence on earth once more. It explains why the crowds came to see him. It explains why people opposed him. Imagine the audacity to say that you, in your very person, are the meeting place between heaven and earth. Yeah. Question. Yeah. Is that the only occasion that the word tabernacle was used? I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, let me look into it and, and get back to you. I don't have an immediate answer. But you see, in Jesus, the way he acted was what you'd expect from one in whom heaven and earth met. Think about the way he treated disease. He would heal it. The way he treated death, he would raise people to life. The way he treated those who were pushed out, he would draw them in. Don't we see like a glimpse in the activity of Jesus? It's like a little bubble around him is showing something of the Garden of Eden. He's showing something of the new creation pushing into our world. He's the God-man in whom the presence of God dwells. But then they took him up on his suggestion, destroy this temple. They, they knocked the temple down as they crucified him on a cross. Well, this time it wasn't a few hundred years with the presence of God gone. This time it was three days and he was raised up again. But when Jesus ascended to heaven, now... If Jesus was God and man in one, it's like the, the presence of man has been taken into heaven. He's pioneered the way into the dwelling place of God. But what about on earth? Where can God be met now on earth? Well, it's in the church. Because Jesus promised that he would pour out his Holy Spirit and come to dwell in us. Let me read from Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. Suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit 
and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Last month, Andy was teaching us about how this was, was the opposite of Babel, how this was the impulse for mission. But I wonder if you noticed the link here with the tabernacle, with the temple, as they were consecrated, and the glory cloud of the presence of God descended and filled his house. And the Holy Spirit descends and fills his new temple, the church. The presence is in the temple, and that temple is the church, it's, it's the believers. You read through Acts and you see time and again people are getting filled with the Spirit of God. And the, the image of being filled, don't think like a liquid filling a bottle, think more like a wind filling a sail. It's the breath of God, the wind of God filling his church. The presence of God is with us and that's something we should long for. It's something we should be experiencing in our Christian life. Just another thing to say on the presence of God in the church, right? In the West, our tendency is to quickly individualise this and think, okay, great, I'm a temple and it's me in whom God dwells. Now, the New Testament does have moments that it speaks individualistically of Christians as a temple, particularly in 1 Corinthians 6, where it talks about um, the morality of it and how we use our body and sexual immorality and stuff like that. Most primarily, though, the way the New Testament talks about the church as the temple is us together. It's a corporate thing. It's that Christ has made himself a temple out of people that he's redeemed and in particular if you read through Ephesians 2 you see how it's that he's brought down the divided wall of hostility between nations how Jews and Gentiles who were hostile to each other and opposed to each other have been brought together as the bricks of the temple how people from every nation every ethnos every tribe every language have been brought together it's a global multi-ethnic thing that's glorious he writes, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That makes a huge difference to the way we think about our gathered times with our faith community. You know, as we come together on a Sunday, midweek, whenever we do it, if I think, well, I'm the temple and I'll be filled with God's spirit, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll go and hang out with those people. It's a very different expectation we have to say, we together are the temple and God has filled us, so we are being the temple. Does it change what we expect to happen and how we prioritise it? I've got a um, Terry Virgo quote. If the church is a temple of the Holy Spirit, wouldn't we expect to meet him there? Do, do we do that? Do we come as we gather with our brothers and sisters? I expect to meet with God. I know he's everywhere. I know he's omnipresent. I know he's dwelling within me. But I expect to encounter the manifest presence of God. And then the story ends in the new creation. The heavenly Jerusalem comes down to earth. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. That's how the story ends. 
So I've taken you through some of the theology of it. What I want you to do now, this is going to be the last little discussion point. Do you think there are things that we can do in order to experience God's manifest presence? Just have a think about that. If your answer is yes, what are the things that we can do to experience God's manifest presence? If the answer is no, why not? And, and how does it work then? That's the question. So take a bit of time on that. Let, let's do that until 20 past and then uh, we'll come back in. A couple of us will pray and then we'll wrap up.